Welcome to the podcast from Gateway Baptist Church. You're listening to a message from our Logan campus. Find us at gatewaybaptist.com.au if you'd like to connect with us as we seek to change lives by following Jesus in our community, our nation, and our world. But when I was younger, uh, me and my family, so I was uh, me, my mum and my dad and two younger brothers, we uh, lived on a little bit of land. And uh, we had a front yard and a backyard. And our backyard was uh, a place that us boys loved to play all things cricket and AFL. Now, when we were younger in particular, about seven, I was good enough that I could play these sports, but not good enough to do it very well. And so what often happened in our backyard is that we would kick the ball into the bushes, we would uh, end up falling through the bushes, we might break a window or two, and eventually my parents decided that they wanted to kick us out of the backyard and move us into the front yard. And they thought the best way to do this was to make our backyard beautiful. So they decided that they were going to get a whole bunch of flowers, beautiful trees, really nice stuff, and work on it so that us boys wouldn't feel like we're meant to be out there anymore, that it would be like an adult place, you know, that it had a nice little chair swing and all of these boring things that at seven years old you think, this sucks. Anyway, as part of this, though, we got to go to the nursery. Now, when you're seven years old, the nursery is not about the plants. It's about it feeling like you're in the jungle. And so uh, us boys, we would love going to the nursery with mum and dad because we would pretend that we were on an adventure, that we were, you know, pushing our way through the jungle leaves and we would play tag through there as if we were running through the Amazon and we would absolutely love it. And one day in particular, I remember I, would, uh, I was it to start. And so my younger brothers, uh, Sam and John, had decided to run around uh, the nursery. Now, Looking back on it now, we must have been a huge pain in the backside for every single person there who was there to actually look at flowers and stuff as we're running around all over the place. But I was chasing my middle brother, Sam, because as the oldest, it always feels bad to pick on the youngest first. You know, it's just like, I'm four years older than him. He's slow. I'm fast. It's still that way. I'm big. He's small. All of those sort of things. So I thought I'd target my middle brother first. Anyway, as I'm chasing Sam around the nursery, I come around this corner and realize that he's stopped. And he's looking intently at the ground. And he's found something. He can see it. I don't know what it is, but I walk a little bit closer and I see it too. It's a $2 coin. (laughs) Now, you all know at seven years old or four years old as my brother Sam was, $2 is a lot of money, particularly 21 years ago. $2 got you a little bit further than it does today as well. So $2 was on the ground, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And instantly, as soon as I saw the $2, I thought of all of the things that I could buy with $2. All of the Coke bottle lollies, the sour straps, the 20-cent lolly bags, the 50-cent lolly bags, the ice creams, all of these things that I could go to the service station with $2 and buy. And in that moment... I knew what I had to do. I took a step towards my brother and I pushed him over. (laughs) Just straight over in the ground. I then bent down and picked the $2 up, put it in my pocket. Now, Sam obviously started to cry immediately because I pushed him over in the gravel and he'd scun his skin and obviously he'd missed out on $2. So my dad comes around the corner and he says, Ben, what's happened? And of course, I told him the truth. Sam tripped over, and I found $2. (laughs) 
I don't know what happened, but there was a rise in the ground or something. He tripped. I found $2. Amazing. Now, Dad obviously didn't believe me because Sam was crying, and I probably at seven thought I was lying really well, but probably wasn't at all. And also because Sam told him that that wasn't what happened. You know, like, I mean, what happened to brotherhood, right? You know, like, come on, Sam, keep it in the family, mate. I mean, it's Dad, but still keep it in the family. But it was interesting. Like, I look back on this story. I can still remember Sam lying on the ground and me picking up the $2 coin. Incredible, because I thought that this was something that I needed. I needed that $2 because I needed those sour straps in my life. I needed that 50-cent lolly bag in my life. I needed this in my life. And I was willing to harm my relationship with my brother for a $2 coin. Now, we can laugh a little bit about the fact that it's $2, but I'm sure I'm not the only person here who has had times in their life where they felt like they've needed something and sacrificed relationship, friendship, influence to get what you felt you needed. And it's understandable in the culture that we live in because we're told that we need a lot of things. Did you know that the average Western person, so someone living in Australia, America, England, somewhere around there, is likely to see 4,000 different types of ads a day, whether that's in mail, if anyone gets mail anymore, whether that's in social media, a sticker on the back of a car, TV, radio, anything else that uh, constitutes an ad, uh, would be 4,000 a day, which if you do the math is 1.5 million advertisements a year that we're likely to see. Now, what does every ad tell you? It tells you that you need what they are trying to sell you. I mean, daytime infomercials are famous for this sort of stuff. Some of the stuff that you see on there, I don't know how it exists, but it does. And they think that this is something you need. I don't know if you've ever thought about it. You know those uh, six-pack machines where basically it's like they just have a segment where there's two people with really fit bodies, and they use this weird machine, and they say, if you use this, you will get a six-pack too, even though that's not how it works because your body doesn't um, lose fat in spots. It loses it across your whole body, just for you guys who are interested in that. It doesn't actually work, but I tell you what, this ad tells you that you need it. You know, if you want a satisfying marriage, if you maybe want to get married, you know, like you need to have this machine so you can get the six-pack that you need. And there's a variety of other ads, but every single ad that you see will nearly always tell you that what they're selling is something that you need. And we as people naturally know that we need stuff. We naturally have a a desire for survival. We know we need shelter, we know we need food, we know we need clothes, we know we need these things. But what our world has done is it has heightened it, stirred it, so that this need is not just something that is normal, but it's just, it's hyper. There's this hyper need for things. I mean, have you ever thought about the fact that for some reason you need a new jumper each year, even though the other jumper works just fine? You need to stay current. You need to buy this new thing. You need, 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 need. And because of this, it's hard for us to ignore it because we have this innate desire for it and now we live in a world that encourages it. And so the question that we have to uh, work through today that we're going to look at uh, this parable of the rich fool about is this question of how do we navigate our feelings of need and how do we live in a world that tells us that we always need more? How do we do that? What's this parable going to teach us about how we can live our lives as we try and follow Jesus? And so today we're going to look at this, the parable of the rich fool, and it's found in Luke chapter 12 
verses 13 to 21. So if you've got your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to open them up. If it's on your digital device, do that too. But Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 21, and it will be on the screen behind me if you don't have a Bible with you today, which is totally fine. So let me read it uh, to us this morning. Verse 13, it says, Someone in the crowd said to him, this is someone speaking to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, just to quickly pause there, this man who's asked this question to Jesus is a younger brother. Now, in this time, uh, what would happen is if uh, you know, the father of the family died, the inheritance would go to the oldest son. And the oldest son would have the opportunity to decide how that inheritance would be divvied up. And the options were endless. The, the oldest son could decide to keep the inheritance solely for themselves. And, you know, they could have three or four other brothers and decide that none of them get any of it, that actually they're going to keep it all for themselves. Now, that wasn't a standard practice, but that was an option that was available and acceptable for the older brother to do. But this younger brother is obviously feeling like he's been cut out of the inheritance, or he didn't get the amount of inheritance that he wanted, or maybe he hasn't got any at all. And so he comes to Jesus hoping that maybe Jesus would be on his side, that Jesus might think, I deserve some of the inheritance too. And the reason he wants this inheritance is because land and property and money and all those things that mean so much to us these days in terms of status meant even more back then. So you were defined by what you had. You had a lot of sheep, you're an influential person. You had a lot of cattle, you're an influential person. You had a lot of land, you're an influential person. And obviously this younger brother feels like he needs some of the inheritance so that he can be an influential person, so that he can be someone of renown in this culture. Jesus replies to this question, though, with this. He says, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? And then he said to them, the crowd, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? Because I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And that's where I'll store all my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. And then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? And this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. And so as we can see, this whole parable is birthed out of a man asking a question for something that he thinks he needs. He just thinks that I need some of the inheritance for my life, for my family, to provide for the people that I care about. And it seems to be a request to get something that he needs. But Jesus responds by saying, watch out, be on your guard against all types of greed. I imagine if I was the guy asking the question, I would feel a little bit taken aback. I was, just, I was just asking if you would help me get some of the inheritance. I'm not trying to be too greedy, but Jesus here speaks about greed. And I think that's because he's been able to look into this man's heart and see that this isn't need for this man, but it is greed for this man. And that's something that I think is really important for all of us to wrestle with when it comes to this idea of need and what do we really need. 
Because there's a very fine line between need and greed. A very fine line. In fact, I often think that greed masquerades as need. But often we tell ourselves, I need this, when actually greed is driving what we're doing. See, greed is a selfish and excessive desire for more of something than is needed. That's the definition of greed, a selfish and excessive desire for more of something than is needed. It's a very fine line between need and greed. And we can see in this parable that the rich man embodied this. See, he had an abundant harvest, and he already had barns. Barns were basically like savings accounts back then, you know? Like, he already had a savings account that was full. So he already had enough for his day-to-day living, and he had some stored up for the future already. He had plenty. He really wasn't in any sense of need, but he decided that, you know what, I want to have more. I want to have more. And so his plan is that he is going to tear down his older barns and build bigger barns so that he can store up more for himself to make himself richer. See, that is what greed looks like. He thinks he needs more, but he already has more than enough. That is greed. And this is important for us to recognize because Jesus is telling us to watch out for greed. Watch out for it. It's not just some uh, tame language. It means to keep a lookout for. Be on your guard against. Watch out for greed in every form. Watch out for greed in every form. And the reason for this is so important. There's a couple of things that we're going to look at about why Jesus is teaching us to watch out for greed uh, in this passage. And the first of these is this, that greed grows greed. See, greed will always grow more greed. And when you read this passage the first time that you see it, you probably don't notice it. But the people hearing this story would understand some little bit of background information that that helped them understand immediately that this man has been greedy. See, when uh, God was preparing his people as they'd left uh, exile, he gave them a whole bunch of rules about how they should live their lives. And one of these little rules, if you read in Leviticus... Now, we all know that Leviticus uh, is a fantastically uh, thrilling book full of uh, great stories. No, it's not really. It can be a bit of a hard read. And so if you have read it, you probably might have missed this because there's so much detail in it. But it's just in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 22. It's small, but it's important and noteworthy for this passage. It helps us understand how greedy this man has been. It says this, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. See, there's this passage, just this little verse, where God is telling his people that you don't need to harvest everything. In fact, you should always have something in your harvest, some room around the edges that are deliberately there for people who are in need. People who are in need. And we see that this man has actually had no consideration for that at all. No mention at all in this passage of how could I use this to bless those who are in need? How could I maybe not harvest all of this and leave some for those who are poor or who are journeying through? How could I make room in all that I have for those who are in need? No, in fact, we see the opposite. In four sentences, this man uses the words I or my 11 times. 
I or my 11 times. He's not at all interested in what God has to say or what God wants him to do. He is solely concerned with what he needs, what he wants to do, what will make his life better. And so he focuses on that and he lives in light of it. And the truth is that if this man is thinking like this already, he probably has already bent these rules plenty of times before. He's probably already made different sacrifices in different ways so that he could store up for himself more than he needed. Because the principle remains the same. Greed grows greed. And the reason that this happens, I believe, is because deep down, we all know that we are in need of something. But we try and fill it with stuff that doesn't quite do the job, whether it's you know, our cars or our houses, our clothes, literal food. But as the theologian R.T. Kendall says, a satisfied stomach is not a satisfied spirit. And a dissatisfied spirit will always generate a need for something. It is our soul that often drives our needs, not our bodies, not our minds, our soul. And greed is really, really dangerous because it does continue to grow. See, uh, when Dad found out that I'd pushed my brother Sam over and uh, that I'd done that all for a $2 coin, he said, Ben, we're going to go home now and you're in trouble. Now, and my family, that meant I was about to have a smacked bottom. And uh, it was not going to be pleasant. And I remember driving back home, sitting in the back car, trying to prepare myself for it by doing butt exercises. I remember I was tensing my backside to be like, this will hurt less if my backside is stronger. <laughs> I was trying to get there because I was so terrified about what was happening. I knew that my dad was really mad with me because of how he'd said it all. And I knew that it was only going to be worse because that was how he'd reacted in public. I wasn't sure what was going to happen when I got back home to the privacy of our own home. And uh, I knew it wasn't going to be good. But I remember my dad saying to me, he said two things. He said, Ben, I'm really disappointed that you lied to me. But he said, what I'm most disappointed about is the fact that you would push your brother over for $2. Because what my dad realized is that actually I'd lied to protect my greed. That I pushed my brother over because I was trying to be greedy. And he knew that if he didn't address the greed, it would become an uncontrollable force in my life that would cause me to do so much more. Imagine if at seven, I'm already pushing my brother over for $2, where it would end me up at 25 if my dad did nothing about it. He knew that greed would become a significant influential force in my life. And so he dealt with it because he knew that greed only grows more greed. And you can see it. You know this principle is true because you can see it in the people around you whether it's their insatiable need for more, whether video games, data on their phone plan, money, clothes, a bigger house, whatever it is, they have this desire to get what they can't get, to get what they can't get for their soul in their physical world. So they try and have more. And maybe you just know this in yourself a little bit too. See, the switch from need to greed is often so subtle. It goes from going, how can I contribute more to this place that I work in, to how can I somehow get more money out of them? You know, it's just a, it's a subtle little shift, or it's how can I get more time for something, or how can I get more influence, or how can I get more possessions, or how can I get more... It's just this slight shift in how you think, but it all of a sudden becomes about how can I get? How can I get? I want this. I want that. And this is why Jesus is so strong in his language, because greed grows greed, but he also knows that if greed takes hold of us, Greed will cause us to fo focus solely on this life. 
this life alone. See, when the rich man says he wants to eat, drink, and be merry, there's no consideration for anything other than the immediacy of this life. And if you think about it, he has just set his whole purpose and life direction for the rest of his entire life. Basically, he's saying, my goal in life is to figure out how to make myself enjoy life as much as possible. You know, whether that's going to be uh, finding great friends, spending his time in the company of beautiful women, or, you know, finding it in great food or great drink or whatever else it is that brings joy and merriment to his soul, he is going to pursue that. That is now his purpose because greed has brought his focus to this life alone. Greed has caused his purpose to be in his possessions. And when you think about it, isn't it utterly meaningless? This is the whole point about him being a fool. See, he has this plan. I want to enjoy all of these things. I want to consume all of these things. I need all of these things in my life. And that is the moment when God says, you fool. You fool. Tonight, your life will be demanded of you. And then who is going to get what you have stored up for yourself? When we focus on this life, we try and build up all of these things that are never going to go with us. I'm yet to see someone be buried with a 75-inch TV in their coffin because we all know instinctively you can't take these things with us. But if greed gets a hold of our lives, our focus will solely be on this life, on these things, on our possessions. And our possessions will end up possessing us. So this is why Jesus has given us such a strong and stern warning, because he knows that a satisfied stomach is not necessarily a satisfied spirit. But Jesus also knows that if we can't live in greed, what is it that we need to live in? And Jesus gives us this opportunity right at the end of the passage. It's just this one little sentence, but this is Jesus opening up the conversation about what it looks like for us to truly live in the kingdom. See, he says, so it will be for those who are not rich towards God. And that's the invitation. Jesus just says at the end, so we can choose to be greedy like the rich man, try and fill our lives with all of these possessions to to let need take a hold of us and all of a sudden morph into greed. Or we can choose to be rich towards God. But what does that mean? What does it mean to be rich towards God? Obviously, God doesn't have a bank account that we can just deposit money into and go, see, God, look how rich I've been towards you. But I actually think that if greed is the desire for more than we need and to use it for our own pleasure, then to be rich towards God is to understand what we really need and be generous with the rest. To be rich towards God is to understand what we really need and be generous with the rest. I wanted to share a story with you uh, that I think embodies this so perfectly. Uh, The famous theologian uh, John Wesley, uh, back when he was around, uh, was living at a time where people were getting by on a couple of pounds a a year. But he realized that actually he was experiencing uh, something unique. See, John Wesley was writing a whole lot of books and people were starting to buy them. And uh, he realized that his income was uh, starting to grow quite uh, rapidly. And so he decided just at one point in his life, to sit down and to figure out how much money he actually needed to live on for a whole year. And after doing all his sums, figuring it all out, he realized that he needed 28 pounds to live for a whole year. And that was fantastic because that year he'd just earned 30 pounds from all of his book sales. So he kept the 28 pounds that he needed and he gave the other two pounds away to those who were poor and in need. 
But this was just the beginning. Wesley's income continued to increase. So the second year, John Wesley earned 60 pounds. Now, it would have been very easy for him to go, well, that's a fair bit more than last year. In fact, it's double. So maybe I can just buy a couple of things, maybe upgrade the house, buy a couple of new clothes, maybe a new uh, you know, ink and pen uh, and a quill for my writing. That would be pretty cool. Maybe I could even splurge on a typewriter. I don't know if they were around when he was there, but I'm sure that would have been tempting. That would have been a lot quicker than just handwriting it. But he would have been there, and he was thinking, I could do all of this. I could buy these things and still give more than I gave last year. But John Wesley kept 28 pounds and gave the rest away. The next year, 90 pounds. The year after that, 120 pounds. And John Wesley still lived off 28 pounds every year and gave the rest away. A few years later, though, John Wesley was earning 1,400 pounds a year. Now, obviously, inflation still existed back then, so he was now living off 30 pounds a year because John Wesley had figured out what he really needed and was generous with the rest. Now, I'm not saying that for us that we just figure out exactly how much we need and we give the rest away. Our world's a little bit more complicated these days when it comes to finances. You know, you've got to figure out your super, your health insurance, you've got to figure out your car payments, you've got to figure out your home loans. All of these things are a little bit more complicated than it was back then. There's an extra level of complexity in how we deal with money these days. But the principle remains the same. Do we know what we really need? And can we be generous with the rest? Do we know what we really need? And can we be generous with the rest? Because when we understand what we need, then we can fight greed. Because while greed focuses on this life, generosity focuses on this life and the next life. And I mean that in two ways. Firstly, generosity helps us understand that actually not everything is about this life. Not everything is about what we get and how we live. And so generosity helps us focus on the fact that there is another life to come and that actually we can sow into that life as well as this life. But the other thing I really love about generosity is the fact that it helps us focus on the next life, as in the next generation, the next people who are coming after us. See, generosity um, recognises that it has to think about who and what it's investing into, that actually there's a whole bunch of other people that can learn and grow and thrive if we choose to be generous. Not just with our finances, but with our time, with our skills, with our gifts, with our encouragement. All these people can thrive if we choose to be generous because generosity focuses on this life and the next life. See, John Wesley knew what he needed. The rich man felt like he didn't have enough. So the rich man kept it for himself and John Wesley gave it to the poor. And you can see the different outcomes Wesley was focused on his life and the life of others and the life to come, whereas the rich man was focused on his life and this life alone. So when I was 22 years old, I was uh, living out of home with a couple of housemates, and we were living um, just in an area near uh, where there was some commission um, homes uh, uh, at the time. Now, that was the first time that we'd, uh, I'd lived in an, an area near there, and um, it was heartbreaking to see some of the situations that people were in. But by living in that area, my friends and I actually got to connect with some people who were doing it really tough. Uh, One family in particular that we got quite close to, uh, there was this mum and she had three kids and we connected because us boys didn't have a very big backyard so we would go out into the streets and kick the footy or skate around and her kids would come outside and uh, join in with us and you know have a go on the skateboards, kick the footy with us, do all that sort of stuff. And we got to know her uh, and her kids and 
As we connected, we got to hear a little bit of her story about how she had three kids to three different dads. And, you know, one dad was in Fiji, one dad had uh, unfortunately passed away, and another dad was uh, currently in prison. It was a really difficult situation for her to try and provide for her family. You know, three kids, single mum, doing it tough, struggling to find employment. And uh, it was a pretty volatile house. Like, we'd had plenty of times where we'd heard arguments and slamming doors and, you know, a few different words. But one day, there was a fight that was different to the rest. Uh, She'd had a friend who'd been staying with her, helping out with the kids and stuff like that. And us boys were all home, just sitting in the lounge room, and we heard yelling. We heard, you know, screaming and all this sort of thing. And all of a sudden, we see the friend run out the front door and run off. And then this mother... Uh, runs out the door and obviously is telling her a whole bunch of things like, please leave. I would like it if you left my property. In, you know, in some more colourful language, obviously. You know, please slam the door louder next time. All of these different things. She was uh, really going at her friend and we were a little bit confused, a little bit um, unsure what had happened, but we left it because she went back inside and it all died down. We're like, all right, a little bit of a blow up. We'll move on. But the next day, uh, I'd come home from work, and her kids were out in the street playing, and uh, I saw that she was looking a little bit upset, and so I went over to her and just sat down and talked to her, and she explained that actually what had happened is in the middle of the fight, she wasn't aware, but her friend had stolen her bank card. And obviously, these days, with PayPass, you don't actually necessarily need to know the PIN. So her friend had, out of spite, gone around and spent up to $1,200 of this uh, poor mum's money, and she was distressed and overwhelmed because that money was set aside for things like school fees, clothes, all this sort of stuff for her kids. I remember having that conversation. I said, I'm so sorry, you know, did all that sort of stuff. I was, at the time, working two days a week as a pastor and studying full-time. So I wasn't loaded and I was living out of home. And my friends were in similar situations, but I remember going back inside and I said to the boys, what can we do? What could we do about this? And obviously, there was no way we could give $1,200 to this woman. Uh, and her kids. But one of my friends, he's a lot smarter than I am, and he had this great idea. He said, we have some other friends and people who know this family. Maybe if we asked them, maybe they would all chip in and we could just be generous and give her something. And so we did. We asked around, and eventually we were able to to get a group of 25 different people to all chip in a little bit of money uh, to just, like, bless this woman. I think we raised somewhere between five to $600 together, put it in in, in an envelope, put it in her mailbox, and uh, just left it be. And uh, I went to church on the Sunday and got a text message from her because I don't know why she checked her mail on a Sunday, but she did because obviously the postie doesn't come then. And uh, she was overwhelmed with it. She said, thank you so much for all this sort of stuff. I don't know how she knew. I guess she just probably put pieces together that I'd heard the conversation and uh, gone and done something about it. But it was incredible because I was able to send back, hey, we're just so thankful for you. We really hope that you know that we care about you. We want to bless you and do all that sort of stuff. But the thing that I loved the most was that she was able to experience that. But when I went to Macca's after church that night, as we kind of do here at our uh, Mackenzie 6 p.m. service, everyone goes out for food after, but we went to McDonald's and those people who'd all given were there. And I said to them, guys, uh, here's a message I got during church. Told them the whole story. And I tell you what, that's one of the rooms that I've been in that has experienced the most joy. I haven't been in many places that have experienced joy like that before. Everyone's like going around, high-fiving each other, chest bumps, and everyone's like celebrating and like so excited that they were able to be a part of doing something like that because they knew that they'd made an investment into this woman's life, into the lives of those three kids, and that was an investment that was worth making. None of us, I don't think, 
I'm speaking on 25 other people's behalf, but I don't think anyone regrets giving what they gave to see that family just have an, a sense that people love them and care for them and that everything was going to be all right. But I also think there was a great joy in the room because while greed is so toxic and causes us to focus on this life, generosity is the attitude that we were always meant to have. See, generosity is in the very heart of God and the moments that we choose to be generous is the moments that we let our heart reflect God's heart for people. See, when you look at the story of the Bible, you see this all throughout it. We can see that God's generosity starts in creation that he had everything he needed uh, you know, in his relationship, Father, Son, and Spirit, completely in uh, constant love of one another, enjoy, uh, enjoying one another's presence. And out of that relationship, they created the universe. They created us. It was a generous act for them to create all of this. So we see God's generosity starts in creation. God's generosity reached its crescendo in Christ. If you think about it, like as uh, Mike said earlier, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God generously gave up his son for us before we realized we were sinners, before we'd ever asked for forgiveness, because God was generous to us. And we see that God's generosity continues in our lives. In James 1.17, it says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Every gift that we have been given, every blessing that we have has been generously given to us by Jesus, whose generosity continues on in our lives. We see it all through the biblical story. And just as greed grows greed, I believe generosity generates generosity. See, God chose to be generous at the start of, gen of creation, and his generosity continues and continues today in our lives. And the truth is that if generosity generates generosity, and if you're sitting here and you're thinking, I want to be a more generous person, I want my heart to reflect who God is and how he calls us to live, to be generous with what we have, to recognize what I need and be generous with the rest. And it's so simple because it only has to start with one small step in one small area of your life because generosity generates generosity. It could be one uh, small, simple step to just be more generous with your time that actually you recognize that there's some co-workers or there's some friends or there's some people who you realize that you haven't been giving them much of your time. That actually as Cherith was talking about uh, God's desire to connect and that we need connection, that actually you, real, you realize that maybe there were some people that you've disconnected from and that actually you could generously reconnect with them and give them some of your time. That would just be one small act of generosity, but it would generate more generosity. It could just be something as simple as being generous with your encouragement. Sometimes we're really generous with our criticism, uh, but pretty stingy with our encouragement. And it could just be that you are choosing to be generous with your encouragement. It could just be small things. You know, you could decide that actually I'm just going to encourage people whenever I see them do something small, even if I just think it's their job. That's what I used to be like. I used to hate being generous with my encouragement because I thought that's your job. You should just do it. You shouldn't get any encouragement out of that other than the satisfaction of a job well done. You know, like, but I realize that actually I can be generous with my encouragement. That's an act of generosity. And if we start being generous there, I promise it will flow out everywhere because generosity generates generosity. It could be something as simple as with your finances, you just set up a generosity account. Account where you just put across a small amount of money. It could be $5 a week, but it all adds up. And it's there so that you can be generous when you know that there's an opportunity to be generous. 
It's small, simple things because generosity generates generosity. You don't have to start large when it comes to being generous. You just have to start. That's the key. And the great thing is that if you are desiring to be generous, you're in a great place because we here at Gateway are a generous church who serves a generous God. And if you think about it, you can see the generosity of the people in this room and the generosity of God in this church just by looking around. I mean, you think about it, just you were standing uh, there in your pews receiving the generosity of the worship team. You know, these guys get here a couple of hours early each week uh, to practice, let alone the practice that they put in at home before they come. They're being generous with their time and with their gifts so that we can receive the blessing of that. Like you've got the guys and girls at the back who are doing everything from media and sound and lights who make this thing happen so that we can all sing all of the words, which is really important because I don't know them. And so when the slide is late, I'm like, I've got to wait. I don't know what I'm about to say. <laughs> and I don't want to be that guy saying the completely wrong thing down the front. You know, it's, it's important. Important. These things are people being generous with their times and gifts. We get to stand here and see this great stage and all this great setup because people were generous with their finances. All of these things happen because of generosity. It's a generous church with a generous God. And so we get to be a part of that. And we get to continue to ask ourselves, how can we continue to be generous people in a generous church serving a generous God? Because that's how we were designed to live. That's how God has called us to live. There is great enjoyment and great purpose in being generous people. And so what I want to do as we finish is I just want to create an opportunity for us to sit and think just about a small, simple thing that we could do this week to be generous to a specific person. And just to be small, just to be simple. You could be sitting here thinking, and it could be there's a co-worker who you know is doing it tough. And you go, you know what, this week I'm going to be generous with my encouragement to them because I know that they're struggling with how they think they're doing at work. Or I'm going to be generous with my time to them because I know that they need to talk about what's going on in their marriage. It could be a neighbor that you want to be generous with. It could be whoever. But what I want to do is just create an opportunity because I believe that God has got people and things for us to do this week where we can go and be generous to the people that we live, work, and life with. And so what I'd love to do is just create a moment. We're just going to close our eyes and bow our heads and just sit and wait for God to speak to us. So I'm just going to pray right now, and then we're just going to ask God and, and sit with God and ask him to give us a person and to potentially give us an action that we can go and do. And then you're going to wait and listen, hear what God has to say, And then I'm going to pray that you would have the courage to go and do it before we sing. So, Lord, I just pray right now that as we sit and wait on you, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us. Lord, may you help us go and be generous people by right now giving us a person or a family that we might be generous to. And, Lord, would you also give us an action? Give us something tangible that we can do, whether it's generosity of our time or our skills or our our knowledge or our finances, or our encouragement, or whatever it is, Lord, may you just give us that action right now. Lord, I just thank you for the fact that you've been speaking to us. And Lord, I thank you for the fact that you are 
a generous God who's been generous to us. And Lord, that you want to use us to share your generosity with others. And Lord, I pray right now for those of us who have just uh, had a person and an action, something to do, really placed on our hearts. Lord, I pray that this week you would give us the courage and the boldness to go and do it. Lord, that you would give us the opportunity to step into it. Lord, knowing that as we step out and be generous now, you will continue to help us be generous people because generosity generates generosity. And we just pray all of this in your name. Amen. We hope you've been blessed by this message from Gateway Baptist Church. We're a growing family and everybody who walks through our doors is welcome. If you'd like to connect with us, please head to gatewaybaptist.com.au to find out more.